The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Episode 67. Hello, welcome to the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. If this is your first time, you've stumbled into a collection of bicycle stories from around the world, lovingly curated, edited, and produced. The stories can be about anything as long as it involves a bicycle. It doesn't matter if you ride, wrench, collect. It doesn't matter if you ride carbon, steel, or aluminum. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or an expert. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, then you're in the right place. This time we talk about drawing and coloring invisible artwork using your bicycle as you ride. We also look at when a bike shop workspace doesn't flow anymore with the clogged bike shop blues. There's like eight bajillion, gabillion, chameleon podcast out right now. And I really appreciate you coming along with me for the ride I'm on. Let's roll out. so long ago that you might go for a bike ride and have no idea how far you went. Sure, there were little tiny cycling computers with little tiny watch batteries in them, and if they were working they'd tell you how fast you were going and maybe how far you went. Back then my batteries were usually dead, and oftentimes the cord had been ripped apart. You may remember cords as being the things we used before Bluetooth. So more times than not, I'd go for a bike ride and then afterwards I'd hop into my car we're on car people are going to love this and i would drive back over my bicycle route with my car's odometer to see how far i had gone and i wasn't the only one and if you happen to go somewhere with your bike that a car couldn't follow that was great but you didn't know how far you've gone then now this seems like it's a hundred thousand years ago between cell phones and garments we definitely don't need to do that anymore. Not only can new technology tell us how far we've gone, how fast we've gone, what our pace was, it can also show us a delightful little map and show you exactly where you fell into the river. It might seem like it's a billion years ago, but it hasn't been that long. Google Maps was back in 2005. Map My Ride came out, I think, in 2008. And the king of them all, Strava, which so many of us stare at for hours, looking at our maps and where we've gone and what we've done and seen, that's only been with us since 2009. Like all other technology, it can be pretty addictive too. There's this option on Strava called a heat map that shows you anywhere you've ever ridden your bike and had Strava turned on. And no, I'm not paid by Strava. And yes, I just kind of like it a lot. And wink, I know some people take it too seriously. Yeah, way too seriously. But back to the heat map. It's a huge map of the world and either the sections that you've done a lot glow brighter or maybe they're darker in color. But what my brain sees is a coloring book. When I look at my town, I look at the parts that haven't been colored in. Back in the day when I was a runner, I used to take the little mailer maps, you know, ones that would be on the counter at the hardware store or in the barber shop, and I'd take a highlighter and I'd see if I could do every single road in whatever town I was living in. 
It was like life-size coloring and I was the crayon. Well, the heat map does this, but it does it on such a big scale that it's really hard to think about coloring the whole thing in. Regardless, every once in a while I'll check around my area and see if there's a street that hasn't been yet colored in. And damn it, when I come home and I look at it and it's colored in, there's something bizarrely satisfying about it. You can judge me if you want to, but it's like finishing a coloring book when I was a kid. When you just look at a single ride after you're done, let's say you went for a ride around your town, down by the river, up by the high school, and then back home, there's a feeling that you might have on your head about what that shape of that ride was, but when you actually see it on a map, somehow it makes you feel more connected to the actual geography of your town. It does feel peaceful to know which way is north and south and east and west even when it's not sunset time. And then you're also left with this artifact thing, a precise map of your little adventure. The red squiggle shows everywhere you just went. It's sort of like a Rorschach test. Sometimes it kind of looks like a dog, or it kind of looks like a butterfly, or it kind of looks like a pistol. You show it to people, but they don't really see what you see. Kind of like pulling out an onion out of a bag that looks like Einstein. Some people decide that that really did look like a dog, and the next time they go out they try and make an actual dog on purpose while they're riding around town. The resultant art, if you'd call it art, is usually disappointing. If you don't believe me, try drawing a simple pattern in a parking lot sometime. First, you'll need a bigger parking lot than you think. It's really hard, and a lot of people give up. My next guest has taken this a step farther. No, make that a lot of steps farther. She intentionally maps out and draws huge pictures, like a shark on Cape Cod, or an owl in a park. And hers come out really good. Like, you can tell what they are without being told. And like performance art, once it's done, it's gone. It's physically not there. But she was the pencil drawing this drawing while riding her bike. Here's her story. When I have spoken to people that don't be like, wait, what is Strava? It's, it's sort of a name that doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. So Strava is an app on my phone that I use to record my movement while I'm riding my bike that then will draw a line wherever I go using GPS. That that's how I record a drawing on the streets of wherever <laughs> to make a shape that I have often spent many hours planning and figuring out the routes and the directions and all of that stuff ahead of time. It can be complicated when executing a drawing and especially in this city I find, especially in New York, because it's obviously of utmost importance to be safe and the traffic can be insane. I've done some rides in Brooklyn where it's cars and taxi doors flying open and kids running out from between the cars and potholes and broken glass and like all sorts of stuff just to be safe driving down the road while at the same time I'm trying to find a street sign for a road I've never been down in my life and making sure that this is actually where I want to turn to make this drawing happen.
Hi, my name is Janine Strong, currently from Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I have been kind of a traveler and do GPS art all over the place. But originally, which still feels like home to me, my whole family is there. I am from Vancouver Island on the west coast of British Columbia, Canada, which is a pretty sweet place to grow up. I have a science and music background, but I became an artist in my later in life, and now I do sort of various things in the art world and love learning new things. So I'm always kind of adding things to my skill set and <laughs> life as an adventure. I mean, I'm a, I rode bikes as a kid, but then, you know, you get your driver's license and you sort of set your bike down. For the most part, I think that's how it goes for people. You have a bike as a child, and then when you learn to drive, then you don't ride your bike anymore. And years and years and decades go by, and I had a boyfriend who was into cycling, and I had a bike that I had bought from a girlfriend of mine who moved to Alaska, and we were the same size. I thought, oh, I'll take your bike. The first time I went out to ride it, I rode it on a terrible road with very little shoulder and trucks were going by and I thought, I am going to die out here. And so then I just had it in my shed and then I had this boyfriend who's a cyclist, he's like, let's go for a bike ride. And it was, it was because of him sort of getting me back on the bike and taking me on better roads. Also, it's just educating me about road riding and group riding and just it's a vast, vast, there's so many different aspects. And um, I just, I got bitten by the cycling bug so hard. And I think I rode 3,500 miles that first year. Okay. Love the wind in my face. I love maps. I love just the sightseeing of it. I love this athleticism in my body has totally changed. I feel so much stronger, even though I was you know, lifting weights and doing yoga and hiking and swimming and dancing before, there's a way in which the joy of cycling and especially when you live in a hilly environment, you know, it's, uh, it's humbling at first and then you, you get stronger. For me, it started with just doing a ride and looking at the shape of the line that it made and realizing that it it sort of looked like a little dragon or something. <laughs> and then I looked at the map closer and I saw there was a road that was a loop that I could go back and make the eye and that there were roads that could look like a wing and I could give it a tail and some legs and even a little fire coming out of its mouth, sort of. And I thought, I'm going to do this again and add those pieces in and see how that comes out. And so I did, and I had so much fun doing it. Just the execution of it, thinking like, okay, this is a leg, and I'm going to go down here, and then I'm going to make another leg. <laughs> and then I remember the tail sort of got changed on the fly because it was a private driveway with a gate and so I had to make the tail a little bit different. The road that I wanted to use, I couldn't. And then when I did it, my Strava friends were like, wait, what? How did you do that? You did that on purpose? What the heck? And I thought, but I wonder what else I could draw. And I've always loved maps. Looking at the maps 
finding something. I think the the joy of finding something to draw and then actually recording it, just the satisfaction of completing a ride and uploading the image. There's something about it that's so joyful to me. And I like I love maps, I love riding my bike, and I'm an artist. I love line and finding the lines on maps that make certain shapes that represent something else, something that's literally been there for all this time, right under everybody's noses, but but being the one that kind of comes along and finds it and says, hey, like, did you know that the girl with the pearl earring is in Brooklyn? So some of the things I've drawn, I've done the Empire State Building in Manhattan. I've done a shark on Cape Cod. I've done a lion, a lion head in Hartford, Connecticut. A smoking cigarette in Ithaca, New York. I also did a caterpillar on Cape Cod uh, and a rose on Cape Cod. I did a praying mantis in Connecticut. I did Santa's face on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. I did a girl with the pearl earring in Brooklyn and the bird in Brooklyn and I Heart New York in Brooklyn. Also in Manhattan, I did the Black Lives Matter raised fist. I did a bird with a worm in his beak in Torrington, Connecticut. That's a beta fish in Bennington, Vermont. The dragon was in the Berkshires. I've also done a fish skeleton in Great Barrington, a show dog in Columbia County, New York, snake in the Berkshires, a pumpkin, <laughs> so many things. Do you always know what you're going to draw before you go out for the ride? Yes. Yeah, when I'm heading out to do a piece, it is definitely planned. And I have a I have a concept of what the route, the directions I'm going to go. And oftentimes things have to change on the fly because roads are closed or bridges are out or, you know, there's all sorts of unforeseen things that can happen, which is also part of the adventure. Or things like I did a I did a birthday cake in New York, actually on my birthday, <laughs> and I felt like the GPS was just not following me very well. I mean, the roads are very straight in Midtown Manhattan. We've got streets and avenues that are very straight, but the GPS was wandering all over the place, and I was so frustrated by that. Strava sometimes messes up your lines on you. Yes, yes, it can be frustrating, but. I guess maybe it's from the big buildings. I don't know. In the end, I thought, you know, it could be just gloppy icing and melting wax candles. <laughs> it's just if there's any drawing that it's it more suited for, that that could be one. So sometimes a lot of pre-planning. Sometimes it comes together very quickly, but it's always it's always planned before I head out for a drawing.
think that's what everybody likes to talk about drawing things with Strava, but it takes a lot of effort to really do it well. <laughs> it does. You know, I mean, we've all had that moment of epiphany where once we learn to use whatever program we're using to trace us and follow us while we ride our bikes, we think, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I made a shape? Yeah. <laughs> and then you go out into a parking lot and you're like, I'm oh, just going to eyeball this up here. I'm going to draw a heart and I'm going to write my name or something uh -huh. like that. And then you get home and you're like, where even? Oh, there. No, didn't come out too good. <laughs> so to rise to the artist level as you have and actually have things very recognizable you know, without having to explain, no, that's a picture I drew. <laughs> right, right. I think some of my early ones, people would look at it, turn it sideways, and I'm like, what, don't you see it? Don't you see it? <laughs> and I see them online, too. I mean, there's quite a, a community of Instagram of GPS artists, drama artists, and Sometimes I see them and I think, what? I don't understand what that is. And I'll have to read the caption to try and figure it out. And then I'll sometimes see it. Oh, okay. That's what it is. But, right, to get it where it's an undeniable image, nobody's questioning what it is, it is a, it is a nice feeling. And I have to say, I mean, living in the Berkshires, which is a country setting with a lot of mountains and the roads, are very difficult to work with. There are not many roads, and there's a lot of sort of natural space that you have to work around, whereas being in a city where it's essentially a big piece of sort of multi-angled graph paper, it's a lot easier to figure out things to draw. Although, you know, there's other issues of how many blocks are you going the wrong way on a one-way street to your whatever, you know, like cities have their own challenges. But in terms of actually finding places to draw a line, there's definitely more more to work with. So it can be a little bit more fun to have sort of an easier canvas to use, which is nice to be near New York for that. And I have dear friends in the city and who are also cyclists. So that's fun too. <laughs> Are you ever riding with people who get frustrated with you because, you know, you have to finish an eyeball or something and they want to well, go in the fun direction yeah. the other way? I usually do all of this by myself because the two times I have brought somebody along were definitely on very short rides and they didn't really say one of them. Was, I don't think he really liked it. <laughs> So I was like, wait, 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 no, we have to turn around. He's like, 180? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I think he just wanted to ride his bike. And it's a very different, it's a very different ride when you're drawing a picture. It's less about the going for the ride feeling and more focus on the map and what you're doing and where to stop, where to turn, where to turn around, what, you know, what's next kind of thing. So it's, it's a less... Um, for people that just want to go for a bike ride, it's, it's less satisfying. But I did have a friend come along with me for the Black Lives Matter route that I did in Manhattan. And then actually the, the skull, I did a skull in Great Barrington 
And a friend of mine actually started that design because he's like, I'm going to figure out something to draw. And he sent me his attempt at a route, and then I tweaked it a little bit. So that was actually my one and only collaboration was the skull. And then we wrote it together. And I think he had a little more fun. But, yeah, most of the most of my drawings I do solo. And it feels it feels like a better a better thing to do solo because it's a you really have to focus. Yeah, most of my cycling friends just want to ride. <laughs> have you ever given up mid picture? I came close on the one I did for July fourth during the pandemic. I thought I'm gonna find somewhere to actually write the words July 4. And so again, you know, Berkshire's, the roads are very tricky and it's, it's a, it's a a rough July 4, but I did it. And I think it was, it was a pretty long ride, 60 miles or, or so, maybe a little less. I think I was 30 or 40 miles in and I came, I was going down a road and the bridge was out, like completely gone. They were replacing the bridge. I was disappointed because I thought, man, I'm, if I was at the, if it was at the beginning, I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, skip it. I'll figure out something else to do. I'll just ride my bike elsewhere today. But I was, I felt like I had gone out with the determination to do it and that I'd figured it out and I was so many miles in and I really wanted to finish it. And so there was a pipe going across the bottom of the, I mean, it was a river. But it wasn't like a an aggressive rushing <laughs> river of rapids, but there was definitely water, and there was this not very wide pipe that was going across. It was the only thing that was actually going across. And I thought, I take my shoes off and just have my little sock feet or bare feet. I don't even remember if I went barefoot. It was summer. It was probably grippier with bare feet. And I carried my bike, balancing, walking across this pipe across the riverbed. I had to get down to it for it's like scrambling down this rocky, muddy situation and then up the other side. And the interesting part too is that I had to go back over it for the drawing as well. So I did it twice. <laughs> but I did it and I felt very satisfied with myself that I overcame this pretty significant obstacle and still made it happen. So you were that risking it all for art. <laughs> And it's not even a very good one because <laughs> it was still sort of my early days, I guess. Um, and it's, I think my drawings that are in the countryside are just a little, a little rougher because the roads aren't, <laughs> aren't as uh, easy to work with. So it wasn't even, wasn't even close to being one of my best, but I think that there's something about just the desire to complete a plan. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a, I'm up for some adventure. And I thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen if I slip off and fall in the water? I'm wet. Okay, it's July. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I'm almost done. Let's just finish it. What is the longest picture you've done? I think the longest one might be the praying mantis in Connecticut. If I'm recalling, it was it was very close to 100 miles. I think it was 97 
point something. And a pretty significant amount of climbing as well. I think it was in the 7,000 plus foot range of climbing and, you know, doing that in a day. That's, that's a lot for me anyway. I mean, I know there are people that do much more, but that was a big ride. What's the shortest picture you've drawn on your bike? Because I did one, I did one in Central Park that on foot. I've done a, I've done a, I've done a couple on foot. So I drew an owl in Central Park, which I think was six miles, which was pretty short. I also did a duck in Brattleboro, Vermont, which was pretty small overall. That might have been the shortest one. I forget how many miles that was. Could have been along the same lines as the owl, maybe. But those were both on foot. I think maybe the shortest ride might have been the Black Lives Matter, 13 miles. That one was really clear and bold. I And I did, you know, I think I still have them saved in Strava. I did so many different versions of a fist in New York for that one. And this one I thought was the best just because of the thumb. That was the trickiest yeah. part. Because obviously, yep. like, the fingers... You can usually figure out streets for that, but getting that angle, those angles for the thumb, that was the trickiest piece of that. I also liked that it was bigger. Some of the other ones I did, they were quite tiny. I liked that this really took up a lot of the width of southern Manhattan. It felt a little stronger, but I had many, many iterations of, of that one. Do you ever dream about big, big, big? What would you do? Mm. What would be mm. what would be your Sistine Chapel? What would be the, <laughs> That's a great what would be the big thing that you, if you had no physical limitations and you could, what have no you imagined <laughs> as your dream? Yeah. So this question, you know, a friend of mine just sent me an article about the couple that did that massive bicycle drawing in Europe. I think they drew a bicycle that's 4,500 miles long, like it's over many countries. It's massive. And they drew a bicycle over, I, I mean, it took them months and months and months and months to do. But it's great. I mean, it's a gigantic bicycle drawing in Europe. And I I thought, hmm, like what's what is what is something that, that I would do? I think I haven't arrived at that yet. Um yeah, something to draw across the United States. <laughs> yeah, that's some commitment to to stick with that and and I don't know how they I guess they just did it and then pieced together the the image later because obviously I don't think they recorded it in one ride and pressed pause and kept going. (laughs) I don't think you can do that. (laughs) I think Strava would have definitely glitched by the time they were done. (laughs) I I actually have been thinking I wanted to write to them and ask how, how long can, like how many days could you ride and press pause and keep going? Is there a limit? There, There must be where then they'll just, I don't know. <laughs> I've seen some pretty big multi-day rides that other people have posted. But, and I have plans. I Someday I have a, a big multi-day one that I would like to do in Cape Cod. 
probably take me three days, three, four days. I gotta sit with that some more. What's what's gonna be my <laughs> my Sistine Chapel? I find myself at odds sometimes. I'm personally like a like a Zen Tangles book. I'm trying to color in all these roads around me, and then I look at my heat map, which is just a collected all the lines you've rode on your bike, and it colors in the roads yeah. and it makes a pattern. And I'm looking at the state like an empty coloring book, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to color in all this stuff. And some days it really gets in the way of me riding for riding. So yes. my pace is lower. I'm going down these little dead-end streets, which means you have to break or you're going to slam into cars and whatnot. I'm going back and forth in a certain way. I'm looping around so I can hit this other street. As you're doing that, like, do you ever feel like a prisoner of this art that you have to draw? Do you <laughs> go for... Do you go for regular bike rides still? And while you're on oh, them, yeah, do you think, so. but uh, while you're on them, do you think to yourself, oh, I should be drawing now? Or do you, oh, or no, vice no, versa? No, no. Or, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about no, that. I try, yeah. Um, I try to keep a, a good balance of drawing and riding. And the truth is, I, I mean, I am a cyclist and I do, I do love just going for a bike ride. I love group riding. I did my first race this summer and I just love, I love it. And so going for regular bike rides, riding with other friends and doing all of that is, is very important to me. The GPS art sort of feels like this extra little bonus thing that I do sometimes. I don't feel ever that, oh, I should be drawing a picture. I often feel like, oh my gosh, it's been so long since I drew one. Like, what's my next one going to be? I'm so excited to do another drawing and I got to figure it out. I have so many things figured out online, but it can take a while for the the time to present itself, especially if it's a bigger drawing, especially if it's farther away from where I live. And then there's the whole weather thing. And, you know, there's a lot of factors at play to, to execute them sometimes. So, yeah, I try to I try to keep the the creative juices flowing in terms of just looking at maps and figuring figuring drawings out. And sometimes I find it's helpful having them saved and going back and making them better over time before I actually do it. But I, yeah, I like to do both for sure. But I, I don't, I don't put pressure on myself about how many drawings I do and how much time or, or whatever. I do have the desire on this cross country trip that I'm about to take to try and do as many drawings in different places as I can. So if I'm staying in a, in a place, I have lots of friends I want to visit along the way. I definitely would like to try and find something to draw, although I've I've started looking and some of the places that I'm going to visit have not very good maps to work with, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, I definitely do more riding just for the joy of riding than, than drawing a picture. So it, it feels like kind of like a treat when I when I do that, the drawing piece. So if people want to look at your drawings or they want to find out more about your adventures, where would they go? 
So the only real place that I'm sharing it with the world, other than Strava, of course, you can find me on Strava. I have a public profile under my name, Janine Strong, and my profile picture is of a woman sort of flying in the air, holding onto the handlebars of the bike. It's not actually me. It's just an image I found online that I really loved. (laughs) But I use that same picture as my profile picture on Instagram, the collection of drawings. So that's the best place to go to see the drawings is my Instagram account, which is strava.artist. You can also find it using my name, Janine Strong. I also have a website where I have some of my other art as well, which is janinestrong.com. Yeah, so far that's it. I have a literary agent wanting me to finish a book proposal. Perhaps someday there might be a book, but I'm about to leave on this cross-country drive for many months, so hoping to just add to the repertoire for now, and we'll see what what's coming in the future. Thank you very much, and look forward to seeing pictures all over the country as you make your way across. Thank you. Welcome to the Midroll Gratitudes, where we say thank you to all the allies and friends of the show. The thank yous this time around are going to be a little bit shorter than normal, not because I have less people to thank, but because I know I have two sponsor segments in this episode, which I am thankful for. But I did want to take the time to just go ahead and mention everybody with a proper thank you in the next episode. So for now, I will say thank you very much for everybody who's asked for stickers. Thank you everyone who's followed anywhere. So whether it's on any one of the listening services such as Spotify or Podbean or Apple Podcast or Audible. Thank you very much everyone who's followed there. Thanks to my small yet awesome group of Patreons over at Patreon.com including new Patreon Ali. Thank you very much. Starting at a dollar a month you can help to pay for the cost of the show. Just head over to Patreon.com and search up Bike Karma. It is greatly appreciated and I will talk more about it next time but there's a really cool shop in Tempe, Arizona called the Bicycle seller and they like custom made me a tool as a gift so more about that next time but for now thank you and story will be next time thanks to katie at bow shield for giving the show a nice little vote of confidence and for also giving me a bunch of cool stickers that i'm going to include with all my sticker packs that people ask for so if you want some bow shield stickers bike karma stickers as well as some cool looking stickers from fred's company ad bikes here's fred to tell you what ad bikes is about everybody. This is Fred Thomas, president and founder of AD Bikes, which is the modern face of Austro-Daimler cycling and the bike company of the future. And I raced in AD as a junior and U23 rider in high school and college in the 80s and 90s, and I wanted to do so again as a master cyclist. But I found out pretty quickly that the brand had gone away, so I pulled a Mini Cooper and began reimagining the brand for the 21st century. The AD Bikes of today includes road, cyclocross, time trial, and gravel models that offer current specifications, original finishes, and programs that innovate 
how we buy and sell our bikes in the digital age. What makes the brand unique? Well, it's a restoration brand, but it was started by a guy who not only has a direct personal connection to the brand, but is someone who you may have ridden with either at the races, at group rides, or other cycling events, or you might just follow him on Strava. And I think that gives the brand a human and accessible side to it, which is something unique and increasingly rare. Why would you buy an AD rather than another brand? There are economic reasons, the price is competitive, and you can buy just the frame set, which allows you to create value by using the components you already have. And there are practical reasons. You need a bike that runs through axle disc brakes or quick release rim brakes, or you need something light, or you need mechanical shifting. You may also buy an AD because of our innovative customer programs. The AD Bikes conversion program allows you to trade in your used and unused cycling gear for credit towards your new AD. And the AD Bikes Choice Program allows you to build up an AD that meets your exact budget and specification requirements. These programs create value, reduce waste, and save time. Whatever the reason, I'm always working on how I can make the experience seamless, cost-effective, and pleasant, which is just the way I would like bike buying experience to be. With price points ranging from $900 to $1,900, everyone likes the excellent value that the frame sets represent. They are race-tested, quality carbon frame sets. They are available direct to consumer, backed by a two-year warranty. And if you send an email, pick up the phone, or comment online, you will be talking to me, Fred Thomas, which will make your experience pleasant and human. AD Bikes. few weeks ago, I was looking at my messages and I found I won a contest and it was from BowShield. I've been using BowShield T9 for as long as I've been working on bikes. I told them I was a huge fan of their product and one thing led to another and they said, sure, why don't you talk about BowShield on the show? But even though it's really a good chain lube that stays on and protects your chain against moisture, don't focus on that so much. We looked at your feed and we saw that you were using it for other stuff like cleaning up an old frame. So I started to dig back down and think about all the things I've used BowShield for. When I first started working on bikes, I was kind of like a sponge, and there were people who knew what they were doing, and I asked them, what kind of chain lube should I use? And the guy at the bike shop was pretty good. He said, this one's cheaper, this one does well, and this one does well. And he said, Shield T9, that's good because it leaves stuff behind. And I'm like, stuff? What kinds of stuff? And he's like, it stays on there longer. In those days, I was picking up bikes from the side of the road and trying to rehab them. If you ever watch those oddly satisfying videos, uh, it was kind of like that. You could take rust off of old chrome. The most views I ever got for anything on Instagram was this video of me with a busted thumb cleaning up an old BMX frame that I got for $10. It was a Raleigh chrome frame and I put a few drops of BowShield T9 onto it, scrubbed it with a brass wire brush, not a steel brush that'd be too scratchy. And then a few seconds later in real time, I wipe it off and it's just beautiful shiny chrome. I just happened to use the BowShield because of what that guy had said. And not only did it help loosen up the crud that was on the part, I found unlike other oils, it stayed on in some way that made it less likely to re-rust later. So if I was going to spend a couple of hours bringing back some chrome handlebars that had a slight rust on the outside of them, I would want my work to have some staying power. As I did more and more bikes, I 
found that the number one enemy of bicycles was weather. If you donate a bike to somebody who can't easily afford a bike, apart from it getting stolen, the number one enemy is the weather. People who don't have a lot of money do not have indoor storage for bikes. Chrome and steel are amazing things, but rust is like the grim reaper. I found even in my own storage areas, the parts that I cleaned with bow shields stayed nicer much longer. So I am thrilled to endorse and work with the people at Bowshield T9. Whether you're fixing bikes for others or caring for your own bike, Bowshield is going to give your parts a level of protection above many other products. No matter what your bicycle frame is made out of, it has some steel parts on it, and Bowshield can protect those parts and help keep them looking good. Definitely, the next time you go to buy a chain lube, try some Bowshield T9. It won't only just protect your chain, it'll protect other parts of your bike as well. Hello, hello. This is Seven from sunny California, and I run the Sprocket Bike Marketplace app. I'm here to give you your ABC quick check. So the first thing I want you to do is squeeze those tires and see how firm they feel. Then pump them up anyway. I've broken the kneecap over this. There is no reason you should have the same happen to you. Next, check those brakes. Squeeze on the brake levers and push the bike forward. Then squeeze on them again and push it backwards. Make sure there's no funny business going on there. C. Check the chain, the crank, cogs, basically the whole drivetrain, and make sure everything is in full working order. For the quick, is the quick release check. Go over all your quick releases on your brakes, on your wheels, and anywhere else you might have them, and make sure they're nice and snug, make sure they're in their closed position, and make sure absolutely under no circumstances are there no parts of them missing. And anyway, after that, uh, before you roll, just Get on the bike and start off slow. Be attentive to sounds, pay attention to the way the bike feels and rides, and stop and look again at your bike if anything feels off. This has been the ABC Quick Check. Thanks for taking a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Off you go. When you think of a workshop, you think maybe of Santa's workshop, or maybe you think of some blurred memory of a workshop from a Miyazaki film. A delightful, quaint place with a workspace and tools and plenty of materials inspiring to just create. Well, I spent the first part of November and the last part of October coming to the realization that my workshop had become a place where work was not being done. The same bikes had sat in the stand for months. Parts littered the floor and new parts hadn't been put away properly. The flow in my workshop for both energy and materials had come to a standstill. A dozen of the wrong size wheels were just sitting in a pile. Boxes that were well sorted previously and labeled were now just everywhere with everything in them. The tools appeared to be evenly spread out over the whole workshop. Taking the entire picture in brought only feelings of paralysis and I had the clogged workshop blues. How did I get here? How did I get from this little fantasy workplace that I would go down and pretend was my little bicycle shop into a just a mess? Marcus Lemonis on The Prophet would say, people, process, or product? What's the problem? Wait a minute, was I a part of the problem? I mean, it was a rough year with lots of stuff going on, but I'd gone down there 
sometimes. I got a bunch of bikes fixed up in the early spring, but looking around, the cats were spending more time down there than I was, as evidenced by the big balls of fluff blowing around on the floor. I would head down with good intentions, I would light a candle, clean up the litter boxes, make sure that the airflow was right, and then I'd just look around and be stuck. Going a little deeper, I think I identified one of the problems. I was not throwing away parts fast enough. While this wasn't the only elephant in the room, it certainly was a pile of parts that was the size of an elephant in the room, a small elephant. If I couldn't get to the bottom of why I have problems getting rid of the parts, then my workshop was never going to be in a balanced flow. If this was just a professional shop, I would just power through it because you need to pay them bills. But this is supposed to be my fun hobby. It's supposed to be fun and relaxing. And here I am poised to do some heavy duty, positive personal growth. Blah. You know, one of the best freedoms in the world is the freedom to pick what you want to learn and do. So rather than working on a bike, I decided that the bike workshop itself would be my next project. As well as trying to figure out why the manager of that little bike shop, me, and how and why I let it get so bad, maybe with an eye on preventing that again in the future. One of the problems was that there's household stuff mixed in with the bicycle stuff. And while my wife has always complained about that particular aspect of it, I never found it a problem because I could always work around it until I couldn't. Unclogging a dysfunctional shop is kind of like doing a Jenga puzzle or one of those slider puzzles with the numbers on them is you got to move one to move another to move another. And I had to move all my bike stuff out of the laundry room in order to get all the non-bike stuff from my room into the laundry room. Step one of cleaning the workshop is to change the mindset. I have a tremendous amount of history with getting rid of stuff. Not because I'm a hoarder particularly, but because I was brought up to be a saver. There's a new study that says that trauma can be passed down genetically from generation to generation. And I think that some of the people in my family who went through the Great Depression where they had nothing and lost everything, probably my grandparents' generation, maybe my great-grandparents, they certainly instilled in my parents a fear of throwing things away. Something that might be useful, getting discarded, it was kind of a sin in the family culture. Yeah, it was shameful and wasteful. Now, if you could sell it, you were brilliant. But if you just threw it away, and maybe you needed it again someday, that was the biggest head slap that you could have. Because now you gotta repay money for that thing that you used to have. I've spent my entire life trying to liberate myself from this mindset. And while you're thinking, wait, wasn't the show about bikes? Yes, it is about bikes and bike parts for sure. It is wonderful to have a workshop and what's called a boneyard. A boneyard is an area with used frames and parts and skeleton bikes, wheels. It's a resource that you can recycle and pick from. When it works, it feels great on so many levels. But just like anything else, when your boneyard gets out of control or too big or too disorganized, no matter how good the parts are, things aren't going to flow in and out of the new work. I had let myself accumulate too many parts. The first step to getting rid of them was realizing that nobody wants those bike parts. Like nobody. Not in this country, not in other countries, basically nowhere. 
There are some bike parts and styles of bike components that you can't even give away. And I apparently needed to find this out the hard way. Even charities like bike shops are like, no thank you, we tried giving two of those away last week. People who don't have a bike are like, no, no, thank you, I'll just wait. Now if you were on another planet and there were no bicycles and you had this bike, you would worship this bike. It would be fabulous and you would make it work. But apart from that single scenario, which is fairly fantastical and very improbable, nobody wants it. I can hear some arguments in the background, perhaps. Here, I'll help you get here where I am. I want you to imagine the ugliest shirt, the type of shirt that nobody wants. It's a shirt that's so heinous that people say things like, life's too short for that shirt to be in my life. And if you can believe it with a shirt, you can believe it with bike parts and some bikes. For a while, these parts that nobody wants, I would be a magnet for them. People would bring them to me and then they wouldn't have to think about why they should throw them away. Sometimes I'd actually come up with a way to use them, but more often I'd just accumulate them, throwing them out, scrapping them, and recycling them a little bit at a time. Especially at the end of the swap meets that I would run, people would donate, I'm making little quotey fingers there, a bunch of parts at the end, which is essentially a giant pile of junk. Sometimes the donations were wonderful and I'm very appreciative for that, but a lot of the time it was just stuff that people didn't want to throw out themselves. And why don't other normal people want to throw out parts? Well, they're perfectly good. That's, that's one of the excuses, is uh, why would I throw that out? It's perfectly usable. An example of this is center pull brakes. Center pull brakes are ubiquitous. They work, but not great. I have a box with probably 40 pairs of them. So step one is realizing that nobody wants them. Step two is fighting that voice in your head that says perhaps someone will want them in the future. That's not your job either, to wait for a revival. I'm sure many of us will move on to the next plane before stem shifters become a thing again that people really want. Another thing is understanding just how hard it was to go from the beginning of human history to that bicycle part. If you think about all the refining, the mining, the engineering that went into getting to produce that old center pole brake, it is a little bit, it feels disrespectful to throw it out in a way because it represents such a triumph of humanity. A thousand years of technology and metallurgy leading to that from essentially what used to be rocks. In ancient times, aluminum was worth more than gold. Yes, so there's like this voice like Cliff Clavin in my head. So to summarize, so far I've had to have three big debates. First, nobody nowhere wants it. Two, nobody's ever going to want it. And three, yes, it's really cool that people invented this, but your garage does not need to be the Yucca Mountain storage facility for all old bicycle technology that's really cool but nobody ever wants to use. Yes, so these are the thoughts going through my head and... Okay, slightly embarrassing to share, but if I can help just one person out there. The final hurdle to overcome before finally chucking these things is the question of off-label uses. This directly comes from my DNA. I don't know how, but somehow it was passed on as instinct, thanks a lot. Is there something else that you could use this amazing thing for? This comes somewhere from that generation after the great crash having to make whatever materials that they had at hand work. 
These are the people who would fit a water pump from a different brand of tractor onto another tractor and somehow get it to work. So this is like passing through the final gate. Having such a glut of materials these days, it's easier to let this particular question go until I get to this final version of it. And that is, couldn't you use that for an art project? Yes, if you were making a skeleton robot out of bicycle parts, because you have tons of them, couldn't you make a spine by stacking center pole brakes on top of each other? Wouldn't that look cool? So perhaps you better save them. And then you do build some things, like you do build a robot, you do build a Loch Ness Monster type monster out of bicycle parts. It's fun, but you still need a workspace. So once you finally defeat all those questions, all those debates in your head about what it could be useful for, just pray that you've made your case on a day when the transfer station is actually open so that you can haul that stuff down there and be gone with it and feel the sense of satisfaction with actually clearing up a small area. Because if you miss that window of opportunity, you'll need to walk by those parts over and over again and perhaps you might come up with yet another reason why you might not want to throw them away. So to those of you who are neural normal, whatever that means, this might seem an excessive amount of internal dialogue just to clear out some crap out of your workshop so that you can actually get to work. But if you've ever experienced part of this struggle before on your own, I hope that me sharing this with you has helped to empower you in some way. It's okay to get rid of the center pole breaks. It's okay to get rid of half the kickstands that you have in a draw full of 50. It's okay to get rid of that vintage bike frame that's made for somebody who's six foot seven. It's okay to get rid of those slammed low profile stems that people got rid of back in the day as they got older and needed to be more upright. Younger slam the stem people, they want newer stuff. It's all good. It's going to go get turned into something else. What about art? Nope, nope, you, you advertised. You put it up on Facebook Marketplace and said, hey, free art supplies for any art student who wants to build something out of bike parts and no takers, none. What about the bike co-op? Nope, nope, you had that hilarious heart-to-heart -heart with them where you refused to take their junk and they refused to take your junk and you ended up just coming to an understanding. In one of the last resorts, maybe you could think you could find the guy that you were 10 years ago, but who's you now. So you were the guy taking everybody's old crappy bike parts. Who's that guy in 2022? Don't do that because you're just going to be pushing these junky parts off on somebody and it's going to just delay the inevitable, which is that some bicycle parts should get recycled. So having cleared out a bunch of old parts that nobody wanted, I started to move the shop around. I started to paint stuff. I found a color that brought me joy because it reminded me of old computers from the 70s. It's this old dark blue. Totally disassemble my tool walls and then paint it that color blue and then put them back up in a better way. I even took some bike tools that I've never used. I put them into a box for the next swap meet. While a part of me really loves the whole eclectic decoupage look of putting stickers all over things and crazy patterns, I also realized that I had zero clear lines of sight. Every single direction in my workshop was overstimulation. So goodbye some of my old stickers. And then the other big thing was to have some blank empty spaces is for working, like a blank tabletop where there's not something normally stored there. So that, yeah, I could have a clean space to change out some pulley wheels on a derailleur. Or maybe a nice, clean, lint-free table in order to take apart a freewheel and put it back together again. Well, as Adam Sandler says in Mixed Nuts, 
it's a work in progress. It may never be finished. Am I happier? Absolutely. Am I inspired when I go downstairs into my workshop? Yes. Do I find working on bikes relaxing again? Kinda. A little bit more each bike. So if you realize your workshop has been stagnating for a little while, maybe you've got the clogged workshop blues. My prescription is fill up two recycle bins and call me in the morning. Thanks for coming along with me on the ride of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's stories. A lot of love and a lot of editing go into every episode. A huge thanks to Mobjack and Keller Glass for letting me use his music as our opening and closing themes. You could go check out his music from Mobjack or check out some of his newer stuff at kellerglass.com. He describes himself as alternative eclectic American rock and roll, whatever that is. You can find out for yourself at kellerglass.com. The rest of the music in our segments is from royalty-free sources. And while attribution is not required, we really appreciate all those musicians as well. Thank you for sharing your work. Well, if you got to the end of this episode and perhaps you had a couple thoughts during it that said, hey, I have a story that's good enough to be on this show. Or maybe you thought, hey, you know who he should be talking to? Or perhaps you thought, what is this free sticker nonsense? Why does he go on about that so often? I am curious. Where do I get some? All those things can be done through DMing me on any social media or emailing me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. If you have a story idea or perhaps you have a business that would like to advertise on the show, or you might be my last degree of separation from getting that Greg LeMond interview, or you want to join our friendly sticker army and give stickers to all your bike riding friends and place those responsibly anywhere that there should be stickers. Last week, I sent some to Europe. If you've got a shop, I've got extra big ones that you can put on display. If you've got a clean canteen water bottle, they last a long time through many dishwashings. As usual, no matter how happy I am when a new episode comes out, there's still tons of stories in the queue just sitting there waiting for me to edit them. But I am working on it. Just goes to show that there's tons of bicycle stories out there from all kinds of people. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Till next time, keep it wheel. Apart from the music, the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright and trademarks, are asserted and reserved.